I've worked with so many of the nonprofits in Tucson who were who got whose fundraising just stopped. When I moved the campaign online, what I started to do was was do Zoom interviews of their CEOs and get them to give them a chance to talk a little bit about their fundraising needs. And all I did for the campaign was start off by saying, I, I am a candidate for CD2, but that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, this organization and the need, their needs. So, and the CEOs would tell them, A, what services they provided for the community and how people specifically, if they gave money, how, how that money would be would be used. I heard more than once. It's weird for a Republican to be to be doing this. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of DC's many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. And today, yet again, we're broadcasting from self-isolation and social distancing mode. And while I'm here in Alexandria, Virginia, our guest for today is in the District of Columbia. And he just recently returned to the district, having spent the past several months in his hometown of Tucson, Arizona, running for Congress. With that, I want to welcome Shay Stotts. Cheers, friend. Cheers, my friend, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, glad you could be with us. You know, you spent so many years as a higher education advocate. I wanted to start by asking you, was there anything in particular from that wealth, wealthy experience that informed how you went about running your congressional campaign? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it, it, it formed a, a major, uh, major component of why I wanted to run. And then it helped inform how I executed the, the campaign itself. Uh, for, for your listeners, though, I should, we should probably just up front recognize that I was in, uh, I was in Arizona the last uh, 10 months and for the last five months straight, uh, executing the campaign that I launched in July of last year. And, uh, uh, and of course, part of the, the t those five months straight that I was, uh, over the last few months, I've been stuck in Arizona. Um, I shouldn't say it that way. I only say it that way because I was separated from my lovely wife uh, for that time. And part of that time was at her insistence because of the emergence of COVID-19. And the other time was we weren't traveling, right? We were all locked down in our, in our homes. And that started in Arizona in the, the first week in March. But um, so I ultimately, so that we don't have suspense going on here, I withdrew from the race three weeks ago. And I'll talk a little bit about why that is. That won't surprise too many of your uh, well-informed listeners. But uh, so how did my higher education advocacy both uh, inform my desire to run and how did it inform how I executed? Uh, it's actually quite well linked, so uh, or quite connected. The 
in, in Southern Arizona, in Tucson's my hometown, as you know, and I, I worked for the University of Arizona there for 11 years, and it's, it's been a bit of a family tradition. My mother worked there. My two sisters also worked there. My, one of my sisters still works there. And, um, and I worked there up until about three years ago. And uh, so, the, you know, university and higher education is, is in, in the Stout's family blood. And, um, and because of that, I was already a passionate advocate for uh, the university system. And then for the university itself, I start, started there in, in, uh, in 2006. And uh, I just believe in the mission. And, and th this is the same community that you and I both come from. And uh, so the benefits and the, and the contributions to society by higher ed are manifest. We both uh, know them very well. But we have, a, we have a continuing challenge in communicating this to, to our communities writ large, and especially to, uh, to voters. So I decided that part of the rationale for me to, to jumping into the race was to help promote the, the hometown institution that is the University of Arizona. It also happens to be the largest employer in all of Southern Arizona with 17,000 jobs. And that was a key point that I, uh, I, I promoted uh, constantly. It surprised everybody. And, uh, and it's, you know, while, while it shocks me that it surprised people, it, uh, it, uh, it's part of our challenge in helping promote higher ed. Let me just say that, that uh, the techniques I used on Capitol Hill to promote and advocate for the university actually were very similar to those that I used on the campaign trail. So both higher ed uh, proved to be uh, a strong part of the inspiration for my campaign. And then I used several of those, uh, the same advocacy techniques out on the campaign trail itself. What was your most prevalent technique? So the, uh, so we all know as, as higher education advocates that, that you have to connect the contributions and the and the needs of higher of the higher education community or or a specific institution like the U of A or or maybe uh, the University of, of of Texas and uh, to those issues that your policymakers care about, right? And so, and this is not specific just to uh, Arizona, but we know that our policymakers on both sides of the aisle care about jobs, and so when you talk about the jobs that our institutions have. Uh, currently and their potential for contributing to the economic growth of your community that brings home those connections uh, I think I think very well and uh, and so uh, I did that on Capitol Hill talked about the importance of jobs and and the the economic growth that the that the universities inspire and produce and um, and I found that I needed to do exactly the same thing in the community as I engaged with uh, constituents and voters. They, uh, they didn't seem to realize on the surface about the, about the number of jobs that the university you know, uh, 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 provided in our community, and nor did they have a clear understanding of the economic growth that, uh, that uh, spinoffs and other kinds of, and, and just, just sheer spending, as we all know. Uh, you, you, you get, you get a very significant amount of research, federal research dollars spent in Texas as a result of the research universities there. Uh, for the University of Arizona, it's about uh, 650 million a year. And every time I would say that uh, in public, 
I could tell that my audience was surprised. Hmm. And so um, uh, the same, same techniques in, in both places proved to be uh, very effective, I thought. Yeah. And not only the research aspect of it, but there's always that economic development value add of the additional brain power. Look at all the studies that talk about how much more successful people are throughout their lifetime if they have a college education. Oh yeah, the the iconic million dollar more of yeah. of, 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 of wage wage earnings over the lifetime, and of course it goes way beyond that too. As as you know, uh, college graduates are are uh, much much less likely to need any kind of uh, uh, government support of any kind. They're much less likely to be ill and uh, and and need uh, government support for health care. And of course, they they tend to stay out of prison. And uh, and that's a good thing. And uh, um, you know, I, I found that the that audiences really, you know, you, you're getting a little bit too into the you know the academic argument you know, when you start to talk about studies and and the evidence shows over a lifetime that this is what happens. They they really do identify very directly with the idea of jobs, though. And and if you take a university like like the U of A and say there's seventeen thousand direct jobs there. And, uh, and then you connect that to the hundreds of, of thousands of small business jobs that connect, that connect in, the, in that second order with, with the primary employer. This fit in with a very large narrative that, that, or larger narrative that I found worked really well. People did not want me to lecture on the value of higher education. And, and you know, you know me, I, I, I can get into a little bit of a luxury mode when it, when it comes to something I care about. I also used to talk about our national security uh, uh, industry footprint in Southern Arizona. We have two major bases, an Air Force base and, a, and an Army, an Army base, as well as the largest missile manufacturing plant on the planet in Tucson. And I found that people's eyes glazed over when I talked about the contributions to national security that those installations made, but they really connected when I started to talk about the individuals that worked at those institutions and the number of jobs they provided to the community. In this, in this case, 13,000 for Raytheon missile systems and 11,000 each for the two military bases. And I want to circle back to all of the great work you've done for the defense industry, uh, for the for the Arizona community at large because of the defense industry there. But you've touched on something, and that's a great segue, you've touched on something that I wanted to ask you about because you know, in higher ed, as in almost all forms of advocacy, there's an element of time spent on building grassroots, building a community of support around the policy initiatives that matter the most, and then going out and using that support to help promote a policy agenda. That, at essence, seems like a congressional campaign. Oh, you yeah. Grassroots uh, Route 1, right? That's right. Right. Actually, a lot of the same techniques that I, I feel that you use to be an effective advocate for an institution like a university in your hometown community, or, or your the community, I should say. It doesn't necessarily have to be your hometown. was for me. Um, uh, is exactly the same kind of things that you need to be doing to set the basis for a campaign in the first place. And so a great example of that is uh, our two, um, uh, the military installations, the Army base and the Air Force base that I just, I just mentioned, 
Uh, Davis Mountain Air Force Base has a community sport group called the DM-50. Um, it's a little bit more than 50 people. Uh, and, the, and, the, and Fort Huachuca down in Sierra Vista, a little bit closer to the border, has a similar community sport group there. And one of the ways that I was able to promote the university's interests with in the community was by engaging those two community sport groups and also bringing them here to Washington to engage with our congressional delegation. I did that for eight years. We, we led an annual trip up to Capitol Hill, we're all familiar with what those look like, to make sure that the contributions of those military installations, both to national security and to the local economies, were very clear to our congressional delegation. And uh, in many cases, we also had very specific asks in the, in the NDAA or the defense appropriations process as well. And, and through that process, and that really benefited the university, the university was seen to be contributing to the economic life of the uh, community that way and also promoting the interests of, of those folks that cared about those military installations. But it also helped me lay the groundwork for why I wanted to run and to show a very important sector of, of my community in Southern Arizona that I had the expertise and the experience to do that. So you spent the past several years on the board and as DC advisor for something called the Arizona Defense Alliance. Is this that same group you're talking about? It is actually, it's the Southern Arizona Defense Alliance. Southern Arizona Defense Right, and, and yeah, that's exactly the group. That actually happens to be an umbrella organization of the community support groups that include uh, Davis Mountain Air Force Base and the and Fort Huachuca. It also includes our Yuma installations on the other side of the state um, uh, along the California border. So, um, um, and, and through that, by advocating on behalf of SEDA and with SEDA here in DC, I was able to connect in with the interests of uh, folks like former chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, John McCain, uh, Martha McSally, our current Republican Senator and sitting Senator on the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, and, and others. At one point, at one point up until just a, uh, up until the, the end of the last Congress, Arizona had five of its 11 total members of Congress, the total congressional delegation, on the Armed Services Committee and one in either the House or the Senate. Wow. Yeah, and really, truly a significant portion. So when I talk about you know, to your earlier question, how do you advocate on Capitol Hill for higher ed? Well, you find ways to connect higher education in with the, the, the core interests and, and committee assignments of your congressional delegation. And with, with almost 45% of our congressional delegation on the Armed Services Committee, it was important that the university show a strong support and connection to our national security installations in the state, and that's that's how we did that. Also, happens to be a passion of mine too, so it worked out great for everybody. Yeah, did this organization exist long before you started, or was this something that just came into being through? Actually, I joined it on its I think on its third meeting, uh, at the request of Senator McCain. He he called and said, "Shay, you know this group is is starting to pull together." Uh, I want them to be successful, but they can't just just work in Arizona. They need to understand how to engage and support us on Capitol Hill, and you're the right guy to help them do that. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. 
On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Very good. So I want to shift just a little bit because you're also a little unique in the higher ed world of having worked for the two major institutions within the state back to back. Right. Right. I'm sure they're different cultures and I'm sure they had different needs and aspirations. In fact, I, I know they do from personal experience, but I'm just curious about how, not necessarily why, but how you made that transition, having spent so many years with your hometown school, a place where you went to college for a while, and then a major shift to, at least on the athletic field. <laughs> That's a great question. Thanks, Bill. And I, and I by the way, the, the, your, your subtlety in using the word unique uh, in reference to me, is not lost on me, my friend. I think <laughs> you're, uh, you, you, you've got a future in diplomacy as well as uh, as your current endeavors. The uh, uh, but you're right. So so for your listeners, what I did was I spent 11 years working for the University of Arizona in Tucson, and for uh, for decades, the uh, U of A was the research institution in the state of Arizona. And unlike many states, including yours. We only have three public universities in Arizona. We don't have, you know, in some cases you have a dozen, right? And and um, and in your case, you have at least two major systems, if not if not more. And ours is is not really organized like a system, although all three public universities do sit under uh, one common uh, board of regents. So uh, for many years. Uh, well, for 50, or, uh, 50 to 70 years, the University of Arizona was the major research institution in the state. But uh, under the leadership of Michael Crow at Arizona State University, they have come up, uh, they've grown in remarkable ways in recent, in, in, uh, in the last 15, 16 years to grow their research portfolio too. And so now you have two major research institutions in the state. And so up until uh, 2016. I, I from 2006 to early 2017. Actually, I worked for Arizona uh, University of Arizona, including opening up and running their DC area office. Uh, and then uh, uh, at the end of uh, February of that year, uh, you know, on March 1st, I went to go work for Arizona State University. And to your point, truly remarkably different cultures in both institutions. Uh, and different styles of, of leadership, both historically, but also specific to the current leaders at the time. And um, uh, I found that, that I developed a, a strong sense of persistence and patience when working at the University of Arizona, uh, something I didn't really need that, that much at Arizona State University. Boy, boy talk about diplomas. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> The, um, uh, you know, projects and, and initiatives, and I like to be a, I like to be an innovator, and, and, and that's, an, that's an aspect of my personality and, and work style that actually fit um, the disruptive, innovative style of Dr. Crow at ASU much better than it did the uh, leadership at the U of A that I was working with at the time. And, well, I think um, you've got, and so you've got new ideas. 
I think you've touched on the heart of my next question. So if I can just, okay, because I was curious if you could draw a, a comparison, an objective comparison between the different approaches to advocacy that each institution utilizes. Uh, well, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting question because it gets to the heart of, well, how, how much is, are you as a, as a, as an advocate, how much are you influencing how policy is made at your institution and then how it, how it's executed. And, um, and so that's where your institution's leadership comes in. Come, it, 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 it leads directly to the question how much access do you have to your institution's overall leader? You know, in some institutions, people are working directly for the president or the chancellor. And, um, and in other cases, you're separated by several layers of, of, other, um, of other leadership, other policy uh, leaders, and you don't know how much is actually directly coming necessarily from the president in those cases. So great, it's a great question, gets really gets to the subtlety of what we do in this community. I'll tell you, in uh, both cases, at the, at, the, at, at the University of Arizona, I had up until my last four or five years there, I worked directly for the president. And the, the president in those cases gave me a lot of leeway in terms of deciding the most effective ways to approach uh, Capitol Hill and to uh, get things done there, including what to take. Because you know, that's, that's half the battle. If you take every issue that pops up uh, that could have a federal connection, then, uh, then your effectiveness uh, and execution rate goes way down. If, however, you pick and choose those things that are most likely, you're most likely to have an impact on, then uh, your, your effectiveness rate goes way up. I will say, just to, to close that loop on, on uh, in, in Arizona State's uh, institution, or institutional case, I was fortunate to work for former Congressman Matt Salmon, who, uh, who most of our colleagues will recognize was a strong champion, even though he was a member of the Freedom Caucus and the uh, Tea Party before that, he was a strong advocate for NIH funding and a lot of us relied on him for help and support uh, uh, on that particular issue. So have, working for, working directly for a, a, uh, an immediate former member of Congress helped a lot. And by the way, and I loved this part of it, talk about a guy who knows whether I was doing my job right or not. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that's another thing. When we, when we have these jobs, our, if we're not reporting directly to the president or, or whoever we happen to be reporting to, they might not know actually what it is that we're doing and whether we're doing it right or not. Yeah. And uh, in Matt's case, he sure did. And I loved that part of it. I wasn't sure I was gonna, but I did. Well, yeah, having known Matt a bit, I, I wouldn't expect you to answer negatively to this, but did you ever feel like you were being second guessed? No, no, no. Matt was a, that's, you know, and it's, that's one of the hallmarks of, we've talked about leadership in the past. I think it's, it's part of the, one of the hallmarks of leadership is you, uh, is you, you go out, hire the best possible people you can, you trust in their expertise and you let them run. And if you, uh, and we've all known folks who, who do do that second guessing, but if you do that too much, you lose, you lose the best people from your teams. So oh, you absolutely do. In fact, it reminds me of a comment that one of my previous guest experts, Brenda Becker made, because she worked for Dick Cheney in the White House for a while as legislative affairs head. And she said, here's a guy who woke up 
first thing in the morning, I got a national security briefing, and of course had all of these great ties to Capitol Hill, that when she would go in and talk to him about what was happening, he never interrupted. He never said, oh yeah, I know that, I know that, because he wanted to not only empower her, but there might be something he would learn, a little nugget he'd learn there. And she said that was a great example of leadership that she didn't anticipate. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So let's let's shift here for a sec and talk about your path to glory. And we'll get back to where we started with this conversation. But you, if I have this right, you don't have an uncommon story about getting immersed in the federal policy arena in that it started with a summer internship. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So many years ago now, I'm I'm uh, hesitant to even try to put a date on it. But uh, yeah, 1989. I actually took a uh, legislative internship with with U.S. Congressman Mo Udall. Yeah. Amongst our most liberal and progressive members of Congress historically, and uh, um, uh, and I will admit, he. I actually tried to get an internship with U.S. Congressman Jim Colby, an appropriations cardinal. Republican, moderate Republican, and uh, and he had the district that I uh, lived in, but uh, he didn't have any uh, internship uh, availabilities for me at age uh, 20 uh, or maybe 19 and a half, I guess. And and so uh, Colby's office suggested I try Udall's office because they still needed needed somebody, and so that's where I went. And I was the only Republican on his staff. <laughs> And that became crystal clear. I, um, I was very naive. I actually thought it was my job to argue with them. <laughs> I tried to convince them uh, that I had, you know, that I had the right perspective on things, including national security. And boy, did I learn, uh, I learned pretty quickly that that wasn't the job of an intern. No, no, that isn't. That's a great point. You, you bring up national security and you talked to, you referenced this earlier you've always had an interest in this did this start from that internship actually it started well before then in fact the the my my interest in in washington and in congress in particular uh started at about age 12 and uh you know when the russians invaded afghanistan and oh. um so i was very interested in that my parents always thought it was very very strange my, uh, my, my mother worked for the U of A as a senior administrator, and my father uh, taught English and coached basketball and baseball and golf at Sarita High School, which is just south of Tucson. Neither were very particular, particularly politically involved, but I, I suspect, although we never really quite talked about it, I suspect that they both leaned a little bit more to the Democratic, probably conservative Democratic side. But I do know for a fact, they all thought it was strange that their 12-year-old son considered himself a Reagan Republican. Well, wait, wait, what's strange about being interested in global affairs and salt treaties and all that? <laughs> and for a 12-year-old, that makes perfect sense. I don't, yeah, I guess, well, uh, hey, that, good to know that there are more people out there like that. <laughs> I just haven't found very many of them. But and then when you did your internship, you was that what uh, just put the bug in your blood and that's why you transferred to Georgetown? That was the nail in the in the coffin, as in terms of that being what I wanted to focus on for uh, for my uh, for my my the rest of my life. The uh, uh, the Defense LA for Mo at the time, and I I don't actually remember his personal details, but for some reason, 
he uh, had to leave the office right in the middle of my internship, my, my four month internship with the congressman. And, uh, and the, so the, the chief of staff came out of his office one day and said, who here wants to uh, pick up the slack on national security issues? And uh, I almost ran over uh, uh, everybody in my path to get, to get that job. And, and I still have, believe it or not, I've been you know, up on Capitol Hill here, I've been going through you know, I've been using part of the quarantine or the, the shelter in place time to go through old, old papers. And I'm, I'm still finding defense news and uh, other and, and actually, you know, publications from my time on Capitol, you know, from my time in the house as an intern. So uh, I was very pleased to do, you know, you give interns these kinds of responsibilities. I wrote the press release when the Navy commissioned the U USS Tucson. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles class tax sub, and I think it's since been decommissioned. That's how how old I am now. But uh, <laughs> um, but that's how I got my start and my passion. I didn't know, I didn't know they were still uh, commissioning three mass frigates. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bill. I, I I refuse to mention that I think perhaps you might even be a little bit older than me. <laughs> yes. Absolutely right. So what did, what did you do after you graduated from Georgetown? Oh, so basically uh, that, that uh, and to, to fill in one, one, one small gap there, I, I took that internship when I was enrolled at the University of Arizona. Yeah, okay. Came to DC, uh, worked for uh, Mo Udall as an intern, and then took an, an, internship, an internship that translated into a, a, an aide position with US Senator Robert Kasten from Wisconsin. So basically, in Mo's office, I discovered, well, every time I, I foolishly advised him to vote for additional nuclear aircraft carriers, for the B-1B bomber, for the B-2 bomber, for the MX and the Minuteman missiles, to bring up an old nugget, oh, yeah. uh, he, he, of course, said no to all of those things. And uh, so I discovered, okay, maybe I need to go work for a member of Congress that whose, whose positions I... I'm, I'm more passionate about. So I went to work. Do I have this right that yeah. Castro was a UA alum? Yeah, he was a U of A alum too. Yeah, yeah. And so I went to go work for him. And then from there, uh, uh, one, you know, after several months with the senator, he, he said to me, he said, Shay, you know, you're, we, we love you here, but you don't, you don't have a college degree. You know, you need to go, you know, get one of those. And so I transferred from the University of Arizona into Georgetown where I got two degrees, the first in government and the second a master's in national security studies. And so um, that has all built my, my history and my expertise in that particular area. Uh, uh, it's, it's funny, on the campaign trail, and we'll, we'll talk about this when you want me to, but there were uh, uh, more than one comment about, well, uh, you know, what is a master's in national security? And, 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 and why would you need something like that? Uh, to serve in Congress. And something that it started to spur some really good conversations. I thought it did. I mean, that would have been a great opening. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now you, you've gotten your BA and you've gotten your master's. What'd you do right out of grad school? So, so by the time I got, I finished my master's, um, I wanted to go back to the Senate and be a defense LA in the Senate. And, uh, but, but, uh, but Senator Kasten had had an, uh, had an election in the interim, and unfortunately, uh, from my uh, position, he had lost. And so that put, as you know, that put maybe 50 other Defense LA positions 
that you know were at least theoretically possible for me to apply for. And so I spent several months really working hard to try to get a, a position as a defense LA, and it wasn't it wasn't working out. The, you know, uh, sometimes the, your timing isn't uh, quite perfect, and so. I went from there to go work, joined a, a niche uh, appropriations defense lobbying firm, which is which was fantastic. I spent nine years working for defense companies on Capitol Hill as a contract lobbyist, specifically focused on appropriations. And um, and so what was I, the name of that firm? It was called Collins and Company. Was well, not Frank Collins, is it? No, 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 no. Okay, that was, that that would have been too early. So Rich, Richard Collins and Jim Bond uh, were, you know, led that firm. Richard had been a staff director for the Senate Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. And uh, uh, and so from those two gentlemen and from my time on the Hill working with uh, with uh, Senator Stevens and Senator Inouye in particular, I learned the fine art of, uh, of appropriations law. And it's from from that spot, from that that seat, that the University of Arizona actually called me and said, "Shay, you know, we we need someone that understands how Capitol Hill works, how the appropriations process works. We need you to bring your expertise to bear now on uh, our higher ed agenda." Had you been working with the university through college? Not as a client. I'd been helping them pro bono over the years on on spot projects, particularly where they where they involved appropriations funding. Uh, on issues like, uh, mostly with NASA issues and their research agenda with NASA. And at the time, and, and probably up until, you know, pretty close to the current day, they were the largest NASA science-funded university in the country. Yeah, I think that's still the case. So were, uh, had they had a D.C. presence before that? They had, uh, they had a, a campus-based uh, individual who came to D.C., but not all that frequently. She did a great job, and um, and she she did she did what what uh, the president back then asked her to do. Uh, she was not a uh, she hadn't historically spent time working in the in you know either on in Congress or on national policy. So, it was, like so many of our institutions, she'd been tasked to get involved, do what she could. But um, but basically, when they came to me, they said, "All right, well now now we need a professional, somebody that's that's done this." Um, well, that was during that period when more universities were establishing footprints in Washington, so exactly. that coincided very well with the title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now I'm I at the U of A. I was based in in Tucson on campus for most of that time, and that's we've talked in the past before. I think some some time being based on campus is critical. Yeah. for us in our community to do the best job that, that we can. But um, but it really depends on the circumstances of the institution. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely right. All right, so we talked about your time at UVA. We talked about your time at Arizona State. What drove you to the public service calling wanting to run for Congress? So, um, and that's really the, the heart of, of the question. So, so for your for your listeners, I'm uh, I'm a Republican. I'm, I ran as a Republican in Southern Arizona, and you know why do I why do I make that clear as part of this answer? In 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 our party in particular, we struggle to to make clear the benefits of higher education to to you know an increasing number of Republican policymakers who are challenging us on on where the funding goes and and in and, and in particular why you know, from their perspective, why should the public, why should public taxpayer dollars be going to support 
institutions who who might have a liberal bent or a liberal predisposition and even worse communicating that to our to our nation's students through uh, through their on on campus classwork and uh, you and I both know that there is not a you know there is no there there is no master conspiracy you know for from you know on the part of universities to indoctrinate students into one uh, political predisposition or another and uh, so one of the reasons I I wanted to get into this race is to continue my advocacy for higher ed and especially in those intersections between higher ed and national security but uh, but to make clear that that about the contributions that these institutions make in our communities and in our in our you know to our nation so that that was one thing and I, and I can tell you the conversations I've had not just you know historically with members of Congress about about this conservative versus liberal um, question but with voters and constituents by the end of those conversations inevitably I find that they that that um, that folks come around that they get it. they they can be they can be this is an issue that we can win on we just need to engage on it. and that's part of why I got into the race the other issue that I the other reason I got into this race was uh, because as a as you know after having been the lobbyist for the University of Arizona and then Arizona State University in in our in our in our great state of Arizona I knew our congressional delegation and in particular I always told myself that I wouldn't I wouldn't get into a race I wouldn't run unless I was unless I saw some things happening that I knew I could do better on and in southern Arizona and I don't this isn't a campaign commercial for me I'm out of the race now but the sitting member uh, I had known for a long time I had engaged with her on higher ed issues I've engaged with her on national security issues numerous times never made much progress in enlisting her support uh, for the causes that I'd engaged her on and I knew I'd found that moment where I knew I could do better and so uh, that's why I got into the race at the time I did. So at the time of this recording we are towards the end of May we're three months into dealing with the coronavirus that has to have its own unique impact on a congressional campaign. But Absolutely. why did you choose this time to drop out of the race? So great, great question. So the the um, now I actually dropped out of the race about uh, three weeks ago. So early, early uh, to mid April, after having been uh, having Arizona had you know each state sort of locked down at separate times, um, uh, in rolling waves across the country. Arizona locked down in the, the uh, at, at the end of the first week in March. And that's important because when you think about a, 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 a congressional campaign and when you understand the role of the national party, so in my case, the National Republican Congressional Committee, uh, they look at at your uh, fundraising and engagement in your in your in your district on a quarterly basis. So if you think about the first quarter, January through March of 2020. Well, we lost a third of that quarter by by Arizona shutting down the you know in the first week, right? Then it became clear from you know that through our governor's office that we were probably going to be shut down until at least the end of April. And as it turned out, 
we were, Arizona was, was basically shut down through March 15th. So you had the second quarter, April through June, you had half of it lost in, in that instance. Now, um, and so looking at just the pure numbers the, the, and the advantages that incumbency brings to a member of Congress, my, the incumbent that I was challenging uh, really didn't have to, didn't need that direct voter engagement to be able to, uh, to be able to do things like fundraising and raise her name recognition. I, as an income, as a challenger, needed that that in-person engagement. That's not to say that we didn't move. You know, immediately we moved with with speed to put our campaign online, and um, and uh, uh, you know uh, to do things like everybody's doing now on you know all day talking on Zoom and things like that. I was actually quite proud of how quickly we adapted to that, and I feel like we did that better than any of the campaigns in Southern Arizona, including that of the incumbent that I was challenging. The problem was is um, to defeat incumbents, you really need an effect. You need to be able to raise money, and, uh, and and challengers can't do that just online or in auto mode like incumbents can. And I found, you know, in calling dozens of people a day, that you know, and 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 this is very appropriate. Donors were more concerned, as they should be, about their personal health, their family's health. The health of their businesses, and of course, you know, for folks listening to this in real time, they'll understand that the stock market took a a huge hit, and so people's personal financial security was very much at stake. and And I even had more than one uh, donor say, "Shay, you know, you know, I'm you know, I'm supportive. You know, I want to help, but I can't really talk about politics right now. We've got we've got other things happening here. This is." It's going to seem in in future months. It's 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 going to seem looking back like, well, of course we had to adapt, and, right. and and those people would be right. But in the heat of the moment and in the campaign, I was forced with to answer the question: Do I still see a path to victory against the incumbent here? And under these circumstances, with six, then then um, then more than uh, forty days of of sheltering in place, I was starting to see the chances of that. Uh, uh, decrease on a daily basis. So are you like a freshman college basketball star and one and done with congressional campaigns? I am not. I am not. So uh, now the question... By forcing an announcement? They didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons I'm here, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm here on uh, Capitol Hill with my wife and she and I She's been such a, a tremendous asset and, and so supportive of the campaign um, uh, up until now. Broke, I mean, I, I mean, it was like cutting off a finger to withdraw from the race bill. And, um, but I, and I dare say it may, have broken, uh, uh, it may have broken Shay's heart even more than it did mine. And, uh, but what and I wanted to wait, can we just clarify for a second? Oh, sure. Oh, Your wife. Shay, yes. Yeah. also named Shay. <laughs> for our listeners who don't know, yes, and for uh, our for your listeners who don't know, she's known as the fun the fun Shay. So, uh, uh, and and it's absolutely apt. But uh, in fact, if if you get a chance, it's still online, and I don't know how much longer it will be. But my launch video for the campaign, Shay plays a prominent uh, prominent role in that. And in fact, at the end of the launch video, as you know, Bill, she says. I'm Shay Stouts and I approved this ad. And, and, and I turned to her and said, wait a minute, think, 
I think that's my that's my line on it. I like that. That was well done. I used to, used to tell people on the campaign trail, I don't really care which Shay you vote for. Uh, <laughs> just spell it, right? Uh, so in, I want to head towards a conclusion here, but I wanted to specifically ask you, with your vast experience, both as an advocate and now as a, a candidate, you have a particularly poignant piece of advice for a young professional who's thinking about entering either of those two careers? You know, the, the best, the best advice, the best advice I could, I, I, that I could possibly give to somebody wanting to get into, well, any, any area, actually it might be, but, it, but it, it, you know, identify what you're passionate about what you're really interested about. The one, one thing, uh, uh, and, and then do that. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it sounds simple and it sounds so, uh, you know, it's such a cliche that it doesn't sound like it's original or unique, but I am truly one of those folks who believes that if you, if you choose a career uh, and something that you're really passionate about and interested about and that you would, do, that you would be focused on anyway, then it's not work. As you know, it's 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 doing what you love, and uh, uh, we talked about my time with with Mo Udall, where the chief of staff came out of the office and said, you know, we don't have a defense LA anymore. Who wants to pick up the slack? And um, and I'm only I'm I'm only kidding a little bit when I said I ran over a couple of people <laughs> to get that job. The the, um, the the thing is to know that about yourself, know what you're interested in. And then, you know, create the, the at least the possibility for the for opportunities to happen to you or happen for you in that space. And so, um, that's I think really the fundamental key. And and um, and that's what what absolutely happened to me there. And I couldn't be more grateful uh, for for it. And here it is, uh, you know, 40 years later, 30 35 years later, I'm still talking about it. You know, so good for you. And on that note, I want to say thank you to our guest expert, Shea Stotts, for joining us here on Any Proof Politics. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, D.C., whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. <laughs> Thanks for this. Yeah, tell Shea hi. I sure will. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.